Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Hello listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade and I'm so pleased to have Dr. Sam Illingworth here today. Sam is an associate professor at Edinburgh Napier University in the United Kingdom and a senior lecturer in science communication. His research is concerned with trying to engage and empower people with science, especially those without a voice. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. And we start every show with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Of course, thanks very much. The experience that gave left me in awe was probably about, I think about two decades ago now, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Leicester studying physics with space science and technology. And I did a summer placement at the Anglo-Australian Observatory in Sydney. And as part of that experience, I went out into the bush and had to make measurements of the night sky using one of their massive telescopes. And it was probably the first time I'd ever been in an environment where there was zero light pollution. So Mm -hmm. I was really able to see the, the sky and I found it deeply ironic that the first time I really saw the sky was in a completely different hemisphere to the one in which I live uh, but yeah that was really transformative for me and if I close my eyes I can kind of picture it now so yeah that was very awe-inspiring for me. Well what I I always remark on everyone's story so differently because they they carry so much of a connection between the person's unique identity and that experience but what gets me about your story is that it's crystal clear for you something that happened two decades ago. And I think it's just so funny to think that we, we used to have these experiences on a nightly basis. And now we're recalling things that happened two decades ago in other hemispheres. Um, and that's just so how intangible the night sky has become for us. So I, I have to say, Sam, um, I think we share quite a few bones in our body. Um, 
because I also adore poetry. I think it is such a massively important form of human, human communication, untethered from prose. And it's just such a heart-driven exercise. And so uh, your work is so interesting to me because you straddle the line of science and art and poetry. So you're an expert in using poetry to develop a dialogue between scientists and non-scientists. Can, can you explain your, um, your avenue of bringing these two worlds together? Yeah, of course. There's different ways in which we can do that. I think one of the ways that's probably the most interesting for me is how we can create two-way conversations between scientists and non-scientists using poetry. So specifically with the dark sky in mind, let's imagine that we're wanting to engage with a community who are non-scientists, but that want to live somewhere that has a visible night sky in the evening. Now, those people that are non-scientists are still experts and they have lots of knowledge and experience and needs that don't only need to be met, but which can also be used to help develop innovative solutions for how to get a real dark sky in the evenings. So it's really imperative for scientists to work with those non-scientists to listen to those voices. But the problem is that when we bring together scientists and non-scientists, what can happen is we can establish what I call a hierarchy of intellect. So this idea that non-scientists feel, oh God, I've not got 20 letters after my name. I'm not qualified to talk on this. They're 100% qualified to talk on this subject. They're a human a member of the human race. So what we do is we write poetry together. Um, and what this does is it creates sense, a shared sensibility that helps the scientists and non-scientists to realize that there's not, not science society with a in between that we're all part of the same race working towards the same solutions we hope and by creating that together it starts as a starting point for those dialogues to take place i think that's a really uh inclusive approach to how we problem solve on the planet and it reminds me of like the recent interest of doctors really trying to tap into the intuition of patients because a patient has so much information that is expert information about their own body they're inside feeling every nerve every every palpation of the every palpitation of the heart so it's just it's, it seems like you're tapping into the, the wisdom of what it is to be a living thing. And actually just yesterday we recorded with Gail Walker, um, who's doing light pollution advocacy on the island of Nantucket. And uh, I gently reminded her that she too is an expert because we all have this right of access to the night sky. And so I, I think I really, I love the, the de-hierarchicalization that you're kind of bringing into this conversation. And so you recently wrote this poem, um, I'll read it. It says, the earth tries to sleep, casting off the shadows of a distant star beneath the tattered veil of graying light, graying night. Behind thinning eyelids, the atmosphere erupts, burning with the embers of ferocious solid states, cloaked in filthy luster, 
these irradiating irritations avoid detection from aging weary eyes, ever-present emitters in the clear light of never-ending day. And in your write-up about this poem, you actually said that the inability for the satellites to fully detect all of the emitted light suggests that the true increase may be as high as 270% across the globe and even up to 400%. When you came across this information, what was your artistic process of wanting to get this message out, create impact through the avenue of poetry? That's a really good question. So I guess the previous example I gave was about establishing a two-way gation of dialogue between scientists and non-scientists. But sometimes there's still a place for dissemination of knowledge. And so what I do with my blog, which is where you just read that example from, and my podcast, The Poetry of Science, is every week I read a scientific article and write a poem about the research there to try and bring it to new audiences. And the idea is the poem's not didactic. It's not trying to say, and the increase in light pollution was 0.23. That makes me feel incredibly happy. You know, it's, it's not trying to do that. What it's trying to do is just introduce an audience to amazing, scary, strange, fascinating research. So what I do is, in that instance, kind of read the research paper, assimilated the information, wrote a lay summary, and then thought about what are the narratives here that can maybe be used to engage a non-scientific audience with what's incredibly important and scary research and that's kind of the process through which I go through. Yes I and I really relate to that because I feel I've actually put this book here it's called The Ecological Consequences of Artificial Night Lighting it's an incredibly important book it is a uh, a compendium of articles, uh, scientific journals uh, that actually are talking about the impacts of light on wildlife. I, and I recommend this book to everyone that I present to, but I tell them you are not going to curl up with this book. It's a labor to read it. It's scientific articles that most people don't necessarily have the training to read or be able to read quickly or get through them um, with any sort of richness at the end. Um, and so I think there is a sort of middle layer of pollinators out there, like yourself, who are actually trying to take this information and get it to, uh, to be in a more bite-sized available um, piece of information for people to have and hold. So I think that's super important. And there actually aren't enough people in this uh, interstitial space communicating. What was your original inspiration for, for how did you arrive at this middle place as like a pollinator of information, of scientific information for the world? Well, that sounds very grandiose, <laughs> but... Um... <laughs> Um, I guess for me, I've always been really interested in the creative arts as well as science. But certainly in the UK, you're, you're very much driven down a specific route of education. Like you kind of pick your subject at 15, 16, and then that's what you study all the way through university. But I was always really interested in theatre and poetry and, and, and dance and, and music and other art. And... I guess I've been really fortunate to create an environment in which I'm able to use the creative aspect of personality mm -hmm. to try to help the voices of others and, and to bring science them. So I, I don't claim to be 
a brilliant poet or a brilliant scientist, but rather what I think I have is an ability to use of one discipline to help others to interpret it in another way. Mm-hmm. And so you are actually the founder of Consilience, and I looked up that word because I wasn't too familiar with it, and that is um, the agreement between the approaches to a topic of different academic subjects, especially science and the humanities. So well-named. Um, and you, so you're the founder, and then this is the world's first science and poetry peer-reviewed journal. So you are really taking this middle path between the sciences and the arts. What, what are you uh, publishing in this journal? So this journal um, comes out four times a year. We have a different issue uh, once a quarter with a different theme. And we try to publish the work of people who are interested in the intersections between science and the arts. But the thing is with a traditional poetry journal, you kind of submit your work and then six or seven months later, you find out you've been accepted or you've been rejected with no further communique, which isn't very mm -hmm. supportive. Um, so what we try to do with this instead is to use the peer review model of science so that when people submit work, we say, look, it's neither at all imperfect at the first step, but let's work together with um, collaborators to critique and um, in work and, and, and your practice. So that's what we do. And, you know, it's kind of blossom. We have a team of what was 72 volunteers from six continents wow. and 14 countries. And I think a lot of the work I do, I'm a white heterosexual cisgendered male who's <clears throat> had every privilege afforded to him. And I think it's important to trust that privilege to help and provide a platform for other voices to be heard. So that's what we try to do with Consilience. Um, and it's great that you like the title. I was literally just in my library at home. That sounds very, very grand. I was in a room with books at home and <laughs> thinking thinking about a title for this project and, you know, came across a book written about Consilience. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a perfect title for the journal. So that's where it came from. That's wonderful. And I, it warms my heart. I think it's so important to try and empower different voices. So I love that you're doing that work. And so, um, what stories have emerged as a result of uh, stories and art have emerged as a result of trying to give other types of voices platforms? Wow. Okay. So this is a, a really important question that I'd, I'd speak probably more wider than my work, if that's okay, and also bring it into yes, work that I, think you, that I think you would find interesting and relevant. So about Western science, for example, it's had such a hegemony of thought that we're kind of taught in schools that this is the only way of developing and extracting knowledge from a situation, whereas we know, for example, that indigenous science, like if we just look at Aboriginal science, for example, has such a rich and more grounded culture and expertise than Western science. So why aren't we listening to this, for example, as a way to mitigate against climate change or a way to preserve our night skies? So for me, given the platform, as I was talking at the beginning, it's about more than just doing it because it's right. It's because mm -hmm. science has these global interdisciplinary wicked problems that are only going to be solved if we have global interdisciplinary solutions. And Western science is a voice 
in that solution, but it shouldn't be the only voice to do so. Yes, I and we, we recently had Hilding Nielsen on the show. Uh, and I have to say, I have not stopped thinking about that episode because as it turns out, I was maybe not shocked, but just disappointed. We are also, when we only tell the star stories of the stars from a Western perspective, we lose amazing mm. amounts of indigenous wisdom that relates to our planet that was cultivated over thousands of years and understanding that was told compassionately through storytelling year over year. So I, I wasn't shocked, but it was just another sadness to learn that that's also happening in our skies, astro-colonialism. So I, I completely hear that through empowering voices, you actually can actually retap into wisdom that has been lost. So that's, that's amazing to hear about that. And, um, your current research involves using poetry and games to engender meaningful dialogue. What are you working on currently? Well, it's, it's interesting you should mention decolonizing the stars as my colleague Paul Wake and I are currently working on a project for a cards game that aims to decolonize the stars and introduce people to new star cultures. So if any of your listeners are interested in being involved in that project because we just kind of need a bit of a, um, a pump priming amount to, to pay for indigenous artists to do the artwork and please let them get in touch with me but the idea for that card game would be to present to kindergarten and elementary school children various different star cultures so that they can see for example look this is one star this is two star these are three stars they've got scientific names but each of them probably has 10, 15 different constellations attached to them, of which only one is the traditional Western star culture that you associate. But then you've got all of these other amazing ones as well, be they the Hawaiian star lines, be they the Aboriginal star cultures, be they the Slavic star cultures. And I think games are a really powerful way of enabling people to see that and to engage with systems. Um, so yeah, if people are interested in being involved with that project, please let me know. But I, that, so that's one project we're working on at the moment. And then I guess the, some of the other projects we're working on as well, I'm working on as well as Consilience is in um, trying to use poetry as data. So this idea that um, actually, if you look at poetry written by a variety of different voices about a specific topic, you can look for emergent narratives that come from that work and then use that to maybe help reframe and represent uh, their work and help amplify the voices of those people who've written it. So that's another, that kind of, that project's really dominating a lot of the work that I'm doing in science, in science and poetry at the moment. That's fascinating because the thing about poetry is that it is an articulation of our emotional bodies. And so when you craft language to build up the nuances of infinite emotion, there's so much content in there that is almost ineffable. Um, and so I, I think that when you then try and collect maybe a, a, a re-emerging feeling 
that that is so powerful mm -hmm. and that's something that you couldn't necessarily document in scientific research. So it really oh, goes to sure. show that you're really, yeah, harnessing the power of poetry to collect different data. I think for me as well, like a lot of the work that I, I do with poetry has kind of shown me that a lot of people don't engage with poetry and that they feel that poetry is not for them. And again, this stems from the fact that many of us are introduced to poetry at school and it's very Eurocentric and it tends to be written by like dead white guys from the 1500s that maybe doesn't have the most relevance for all of us. Um, and so normally when I work with audiences and they say, I don't like poetry, it makes me really sad. It's, it's, I always think about music, right? Like I like lots of music, but I don't really like Finnish death metal. And if I'd only ever heard Finnish death metal, I'd probably say I hated music. And I think it's the same with people and poetry. So working with communities to find voices that speak with them and for them can be so empowering. And and I, I don't want this to sound um, trite, but I really, really, part of my like larger, I guess, ethos is I just really want people to have poetry in their lives because I find it to be such a spiritual, in, in the fundamental sense of the word, and enriching experience. And for some people to have that denied because they've been told that poetry is a certain thing is really sad. So yeah, a lot of my work is trying to break down those barriers as well. Yeah, I I can relate to that arc of kind of coming to poetry with a little bit of a stale feeling towards it. I, I can't say, I think actually I, I rediscovered poetry through my own writing and realizing, well, this isn't really prose anymore. And then realizing that you could actually start to really craft something that carried much more than just the words through the cadence or um, the rhythm. And so I think there's there, I, I think I almost rediscovered poetry just through allowing myself to experience it through my own writing. But I agree, I've come across so many poems that are from other times and the meter is just not my jam or it's, it is something that is infinite, but if you were given only a, a narrow view of it, you might lose out on such an important medium for humanity. And so I think you're absolutely you... right. It's really, it's no, it's really important to be able to say, I hate that poem, that celebrated poem, or I love that poem that everybody else thinks is doggerel. Like that's really important. And, you know, I always tell people when you're analyzing or reading poetry, like, Whatever you, like, however you think of a poem is no more or less correct than anybody else's interpretation of that poem. Like, you bring your life and yourself to that poem. So the way that I read a poem, Jane, or the way that you read a poem are going to be completely different, but they're not any more less or right. They're just different. And that's the beauty of poetry, you know, exactly like the opening question of this podcast. It, it, when you think about these things, it you have your individual experiences that make it so rich mm -hmm. when you engage with it as a me, which I think poetry is amazing for. Yes. What Do you have any poems that you come back to again and again that you just can't wait to read? 
I'm really, I have like, I'm just. <laughs> you got to pull it up. No, I have, you know, there's, there's one, um, there's one poem that I was, I'm just really bad with people's names, but there's, there's one poem that I just love. So it's by Caroline Forche. Um, it's called The Colonel. Um, and it's, it's a prose poem, like however you interpret that. And it's just phenomenal. Like, and again, people listening to this, if you read it and you hate it, that's fine as well. But for me, when I read that poem, I was like, wow, like, this is what poetry can do. Like that, and then like um, Citizen and an American Lyric by Claudia Rankine were kind of just eye-opening examples of what the medium can do and how how poetry, so Shelley had this quote, like, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically said that, you know, poetry holds a mirror up to society. And like certainly the work of Claudia and others, it, it holds a mirror up, but it shows us what's and all and poetry is incredibly powerful for doing that for for making us look at things that we want to avert our eyes from so certainly the work the work of claudia um yeah if i had like a thousandth of her talent i would be very very happy and um the colonel by carolyn forche which i'd really encourage people to read because it's just (laughs) i don't know it's hard to explain it's just i think it's amazing yeah, I have a poem by Nathaniel Perry. I don't remember the name of it, but it's about the birth of his daughter. And it's it's just so moving to read. And the cadence, the way that he articulates this moment of holding his little newborn um, and what that moment meant to him and what it might mean to her in the future. It's so intimate. It's like you're mm. inside his this intimate experience of someone else's. And uh, I I will reread it for the rest of my life. It is so beautiful, and for me, it it really also showed me the power of a poem. And wow. so you work with young people. You're you're an educator and a professor. What is the reaction? I, I would love to have sat in on your classes and someone telling me that poetry and science can live together. So what is the reaction of these young people in your work? <laughs> Well, I I guess young people and like older people as well, it's actually pretty positive. And I think for me, it's about creating a space where people can strongly express an opinion and that's fine. And I don't mind if people don't like it or don't like that approach, as long as they just come to with it with an open mind. And I think that I think that people appreciate that. And I do a lot of I do a lot of workshops like I must have taught tens of thousands of scientists now on like how to write poetry about their research. And, you know, I know that several of them are still writing poetry now as a result, which is great. So, yeah, I think I think people enjoy it. It becomes quite hard, though, to be honest, because you become kind of associated with this thing. And mm-hmm. poetry is such an important part of my life as well. Like, you know, I'm spoken word artist, I'm a poet, I, I love, I, I consume poetry. The, the barriers between work and life sometimes become very, very faded. Um, and yeah, that's, that's just a bit of a, a danger for me when I'm like, am I, is this work now or is this, is this life or, or where is the boundary? 
Um, and look, I'm so privileged to have the job that I have, which I love. But you know, just speaking honestly, that's one of the things that I always have to be slightly cautious of um, in, my, in my spare time, inverted commas. <clears throat> cautious in what way? I guess just cautious that it doesn't, um, it just doesn't eat into everything I do. Like, so, you know, I love poetry and I love games, but I also happen to research poetry and games as well. So at what point when I'm enjoying a poem or when I'm enjoying a game, am I doing it because I'm enjoying it versus I'm doing it because I feel as though this is related to work? You know, I might, when I read a poem, am I okay to just enjoy it rather than go, oh, that particular line would be a great example of x that i could share with y audience or if i'm playing a game am i like oh this particular cutscene is a fantastic example of how to miscommunicate a particular scientific problem so having that that headspace to like disconnect between them is is quite necessary i mean it's it's, it's almost impossible right like, that's i think that a lot of scientists would say the same thing like being a scientist is a huge vocation certainly in the uk we don't do it we don't do it for the money right like and it's it's such an a tangible part of who who i am that trying to separate that is sometimes necessary to be like live a healthy um life but isn't always possible uh i have that problem too in fact I am often realizing that I've been on my computer or phone and I realize, well, I'm, am I working or am I having fun or what? I, I totally get that. And that brings me to my next point, which is that part of the issue is that we are constantly working with light driven devices and the perpetual day and that the night sky is this reprieve we have stopped taking to look at the infinity and mm feel our existence in the unknown. And so you have written um, that you, so you recently wrote that new research has found that sounds of spring are changing. Um, and so, and you also wrote that there's, uh, this, these are two articles that you wrote and then wrote poems for that, um, that science, that when astronauts are in space, their communication style changes. So how do you think our communication style with the world has changed on a planet that never wow. sees the night? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that astronaut research is amazing. Basically what it was, was that they simulated what it would be like to go to Mars. So they locked people into a chamber for like 140 days and monitored what their communications were like. And it was fascinating because what they found was that they communicated less with mission control, but that by the end of the mission, people's individual communication styles actually had kind of flattened out so that there was this real synthesis with how people engage with one another into a collective, which I just thought was beautiful and like really spoke to potentials for how we can get, not group speak, because that's awful, but like how we can get people to think mm. to, collectively the sounds of spring research is also like just really sad because it's this idea that um obviously with environmental degradation there's less birds in springtime so the, the, the there's less diversity and so the dawn chorus changes and i forget the name of it but there's 
it's like kind of our engage. There's a scientific term, it doesn't really matter. It's like our engagement with nature, our engagement with the environment has completely changed and in a bad way. And, and the reason that's bad is, is for two reasons. One, as we know, it fundamentally affects our mental health and well-being. Like I've recently moved mm -hmm. to the country and like into the rural area. My mental health has increased dramatically, as, like, wow. dr like beyond, yeah, like unbelievable. I just feel so much less stress. <laughs> like when like on my doorstep and it's, I'm, again, really privileged, really blessed, but I was in the city center and I've moved out and my mental health is massively increased. Same with my family. But then number two, if we don't engage with nature, we're far less likely to want to protect it because we have a disconnect mm -hmm. with it. So not only are we, you know, really doing ourselves a disservice, and again, I know not everybody's in a position where they can, but there's different ways in which we can engage with nature in an urban environment as well. But by not doing so, we're also making it far less likely that we're wanting to create policies that will help to protect biodiversity for the future as well which is why that research is so sad and really upsetting yeah and it, you know it, it harkens back to rachel carson's silent spring when Absolutely. there was uh chemicals that prevented the bird shells from being able to hold the eggs so then there was no sounds that came the following spring because there were no birds hatching and how heartbreaking that is and i have it was not lost on me that uh, maybe we solved that crisis. However, we've come up with all new ones, which is that light pollution, at least here in North America, is keeping is killing a billion birds in North America each year alone. Uh, it could, it's probably more. And so um, there's there was also a recent study that equated a connection for humans when when humans have access to bird viewing, it actually gives them as much happiness as having a uh, financial safety and li livelihood oh, so a hundred percent a hundred percent and that that the phrase by the way i was looking for is extinction of experience you know so oh. when you have extinction of, i know right it's a beautiful phrase and and, and that is the 21st century equivalent of like silent spring really this idea that yeah. the night sky is a perfect example of this actually our extinction of experience of being able to go out and see like the milky way or whatever is yeah and engaging with nature is just it's scientifically been proven to make us happy mm -hmm. like the, the and what i find really interesting actually is lots of research into green space and blue space and like your ability to be able to see green space and blue space uh, green space being like parks like greenland etc blue space being rivers but also like boating lakes and ponds and amazingly, the research suggests that being able to see blue space is even better for your mental health than being able to see green space. So wow. if you're ever in a position, I know, right, you can just try to be somewhere where you can see blue space. Like that's the best thing you can have for your mental health in terms of that engagement with nature. So I recently wrote about James Terrell in um, an article I wrote for LDNA magazine. And essentially, James Terrell actually part of his motivation with the Gonsfeld, which is the complete field of your own view uh, being stimulated, is that when you have only one stimulus, uh, and in his case, he's using light, but I would also say that the dark sky and the sky also do that, 
you actually override the visual system to tap into an inner experience. And so I, I see what you're saying when you talk about the importance of blue, blue space, is that I was recently teaching yoga in a park and I, I cued to the students, look up at the sky. We were on our backs at that moment. Look up at the sky and take in that field of view. And what that does is it actually brings you into your internal landscape that we're not necessarily tapping into enough because of the overstimulation of our visual systems day after day. I'm really just curious, human to human, Sam, in what ways do you have you felt this immense change in your mental health by moving outside of the city? Okay, so I guess so where I was before, it was it was really nice, but it was like really in a busy road. Um, and I, and mm -hmm. I love running and running such mm -hmm. a fundamental part of my identity. It's something I've always done, like when I was able to travel. It was the way that I used to used to like see cities around the world. It's it's just a very it's a huge part of my personal identity, and mm -hmm. being able to go for a run where I can you know see deer or I can breathe fresh air or I can see buzzards or like birds of prey versus twenty cars beeping at me is just it's really it's just hard to point towards how different that is and again i'm speaking from a huge position of privilege as someone who was able to move into that rural environment um mm -hmm. but now like if i'm feeling stressed like i've always gone for a run but now it's profoundly different like even just in a two minute walk i can be like literally in the middle of nowhere and if i've had a hard day at work that reconnection with nature is really important and kind of just helps to i guess refocus what's important and the things i was worried about certainly work related become maybe not that important anymore mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's totally i think what the night sky also does is it's this disconnection from our daily lives and I also have a question. Do you, when you get back for your, from your run, do you get flashes of the visual experience of the space you've just made later into the evening? Uh, that's a really cool way of looking at it. I, I haven't thought, I don't do that, but that's probably because I also don't make enough space for myself to mentally reflect on things, which is a huge one of several failings that I have. Um, but I do, what I do is I've listened to podcasts recently about incremental gains and, you know, one of the incremental, it's really sad, but one of the incremental gains about running is projecting where you're going to be so you can work out, you know, let's say I want to try and run like, I don't know, like a sub 19 minute 5k. I, I'll know that, okay, at this point here, I need to be running at a certain speed in order to do that. And by having that mental projection in the future, again, it's been scientifically proven that that visualization can improve your capabilities as, as an athlete, amateur or elite. So for me, I have the reverse of what you're saying, really. I have that projection, but for me, it comes before I go on the run rather than Interesting. afterwards. Well, I, I think that's a, it's a different version of the same thing. And when I'm teaching yoga, the second to last posture is um, actually fetal position. It comes right after Shavasana and then a fetal position is you're curled up on your side, 
And I always ask my students to take a picture of the space that they just made for themselves because you've built all this space with breath in your body and in the movement. And now you can actually take a little bit of a memory of it and bring it with you. So I, but I also see what you're saying too, that in that visualization of the future, it's also bringing you back into the moment with a goal and trajectory. So both are very valuable practices of mindfulness. And I, I think in general, when we hearken back to the subject of this show, we talk about the night sky and that moment of reflection and that distance that you can actually, you know, say you have a small to-do list with lots of problems on it, but then you, you take in, in your way that projection into the future or that projection into this illimitable distance. It does something for our psyches. And 100%. I remember being at a, a um, I saw Linnea Tillett, she's a wonderful lighting designer, all about conservation and using as little light as possible. And this was years ago. This is really before the dark sky movement had even met the lighting industry. Uh, and this was in New York, probably around 2012. She said, if you want to be a better lighting designer, read more poetry. And I, I wanted to give you that quote because I thought it would mean a lot to you in terms of how you work in trying to empower scientists with poetry to share and That's maybe awesome. perhaps deepen their work. Have yeah, you seen I, that I happen? think as well, yeah, well, what I was going to say is that I think that the, the night sky and the, lack, the night sky, ignoring light pollution, I think is the greatest example of a connection to our past that you can ever tangibly see. And, and the reason I mean this is that when I look at the sky and I see a collection of stars and I'm able to identify them or not, it doesn't matter. And when I look at that star, I know that my ancestors, like going back to the dawn of humankind, have looked at that same star. And where else can you have that? Like you can't have that anywhere else with any other experience. And I just find that find that so profoundly grounding and important. And like beyond like beyond anything, just our connection to our past and to our planet and to our space. That for me, like going back to the topic of this podcast, like that's why having access to the night sky is so important because when we when we don't have it again i think i really honestly think we lose a connection to our past i totally agree and i have also long believed that the night sky may be just the missing fundamental piece to redirecting climate change that if everyone had mm. access to the night sky i think we'd actually re read invigorate the connection to nature. And in that reinvigoration, we'd be better scientists, better designers, better builders, uh, more compassionate towards wildlife. And that's the other thing. Not only does the night sky connect us to all humans, it connects us to all living things that have astro-navigated or uh, lived with the natural daylight cycle as we have. It's, this, it's more connecting than anything, than the, the internet. It's it it connects all life that has ever lived on the planet. So, you uh, 
What are some of the favorite stories that have emerged through your work with poetry and science and the impacts that you've seen ripple out? So I get what several workshops always really stick with me. So there's one workshop that we had with um, a group of people living with severe mental health needs in a very inner city um, region of Manchester in the UK. And we were talking about air pollution and kind of writing poetry as a way to express their needs and, and experiences. And the idea was we, we talked a little bit about the science and about their experiences, and then they wrote some poetry. And one of the poems that they wrote will always stick with me. It was just three lines. It said, I've never seen pollution, never noticed it. But it's always been there, just breathing it in. And for me, that was like a really important experience that, look, I'm in a position of privilege where I understand what air pollution is. I can move to an environment where there's less air pollution. Mm. But what about mm. if I'm someone who doesn't even know what air pollution is through no fault of my own? And I'm somebody who also probably has one of the lowest actual carbon footprints on the planet as well. Yet I'm the one that's made to pay and like for me that was really important as a demonstration as to why these voices need to be heard in the development of scientific discourse yeah that's heartbreaking to hear someone basically describing the reality that is so profoundly surrounding them that they can barely differentiate it as being anything but just normal and that's their natural living environment, unfortunately. So um, I we touched upon earlier how you have the danger of your science, your poetry, and your work, and your recreation all merging into this field of interest that you have. But one question I always love asking people is that we have our work in the world, but we also have our art. And so do you have, I see two guitars in your background. So are you a musician? Do you have, what are your artistic pursuits? Is that, it, uh, musician would be a very loose sense of what I do, but I guess, um, yeah, I like I, 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 I like poetry, obviously. I, I'm a games designer. Um, but I think that, Poetry is like by far and away the most important. Like it's just always been very important to me. Back from when I was a, you know, a teenage singer songwriter in a band writing incredibly bad poetry and lyrics, through to when I lived in Japan and used poetry as a way of like reflecting on my experiences. And it's yeah, that that that's I guess exactly what I mean. Coming back to that thing that it's so integral to my my persona. Um, that it's very difficult for it not to become all-encompassing. But in many ways, that's a great thing. And I would love people to have poetry in their lives as much as I have it in my life. So if you're writing a poem and you, you hit maybe the flow state, what does that do for your psyche? And what does that, what after having achieved a flow state, how do you bring that back to your work? What does it enrich your work with? Okay, that's a really great question. So I'll answer it in another way, if that's okay. So I, absolutely, I think that poetry is a really, really powerful way of 
targeting the incubation period. So you know that thing where you're kind of working on a problem and you just can't get anywhere. So you, you purposely leave it, walk away, go for a walk. Yes. And then the solution hits you, right? Like you're going into yeah. bed or into the shower or onto a train and great. That's the incubation period. It's such a passive way of getting at it. So instead, what I encourage people to do is if you've got a problem, write a poem about that experience. And what that does wow. is it forces your brain to actively target the incubation period, like subconsciously. So yeah, for all the listeners and for everyone, I would really recommend that. Like when you have a problem in like your personal or professional life, just write a poem about it. And it will just force you to engage with the problem in a different way and to look at it through a new lens and potentially come up with an alternative solution. And part of the reason why I ask this is because I feel like poetry and the night sky are offering very similar medicinal properties for our minds and our processes. And the way that you describe poetry actually reminds me of a practice that I have, which is writing down my dreams. And often in my articulation of trying to capture what this dream means, I realize uh, how much more meaning was in the dream than I could have Im immediately thought. And so I feel like what you're suggesting is to start to articulate the details of the problem, the nuances of it. And, and by even just taking your brain and your threat, your thread of thought through those details, you'll start to see the solutions emerge. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. That's a really nice summary of it. And I think the importance of the night sky is kind of what you're saying about how you have that dangerous slippery slope of you're working, are you not working? Am I going to try to share this? Am I going to try to amplify this? And, and you know, how we have our outward facing art is very different than the, the sloppy, messy, uh, raw feelings that we have inside and I feel like that almost is what the night sky is because the night sky is uh, it's scary it's uncertain and and so I feel like that's the messiness that you kind of need as an artist to not necessarily be decided or have to make a decision um, and so I feel like that it may be a sort of a parallel to why you like to keep some of your art um, for your personal recreation. That's a really nice way of looking at it. I think it's okay to sometimes share that as well though, right? Like Yes, um, definitely. Like, and like and I guess for me it's really important like because it's this idea of not trying to if I'm I've written a lot of poetry, so I, I know poetry and I know how poetry works just through practice. And in an environment if you're trying to encourage people to be poets who's never written before if you suddenly share something that you know is very good then that's really not always appropriate whereas instead like showing the workings in your struggles and in your naff poetry as well is is can be really engaging and like help to show how the process can happen as well that's so true. And I'm a big believer that you have to get out some really stupid thoughts, like embarrassing thoughts in your process, because they're, they're there in front of this waterfall. And if you don't let those out, the good ones behind it are not going to release as well. 
And so you have to kind of get the momentum up. But I, I agree as a teaching tool, you're right. You don't want to show your polished stuff necessarily to uh, a group full of um, new uh, people to poetry. So what's on the horizon for your work? What do you hope to convey through your art of the, this intersection of poetry and science? Um, I think honestly, it's just to try for everybody to realize that science and poetry can be for them and that both disciplines have been taken away from so many people for so long and both disciplines have been defined as being certain things that are really exclusionary that actually, if you write your dreams down in a journal in a poetic way, you're a poet. If you go and count all of the ladybirds in your back garden and compare it against the day before, you're a scientist. You don't need a Pulitzer Prize or a Nobel Prize or anybody else's definition to tell you what you are or what you aren't. They're just different ways of trying to make sense of the world and the way in which we live. and. If I can help some people to understand that both disciplines are absolutely for them, then I would consider my work to be a success. That's beautiful. And I also think in the way that you use poetry, that it's also memory making. In this fleeting world of screens that just have bottlenecks of information, you know, I sit down on my computer, I could go in any direction. And it all then disappears when I change tabs or pages. And so, you know, you'll you'll have this moment where you're like, I've read something, but I don't know where I read it. And it's so like fleeting and you can't keep tabs on it. But when you sit down and you write a poem about an experience, you you bring so much more depth and memory to it. So it's it's also a way, I think, to find grounding in the information that we're working with. Absolutely. So um, is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with in your, in your work or in um, your thoughts? All I, no, all I'd say is that I would encourage everyone after having read this podcast to go outside into the night, mm. look up at the sky, wherever you are, and write down some words about that experience. And if you want to share it with other people, including with this podcast, then that would be fantastic. But if you also just want to keep it in a locked drawer somewhere, that's also okay. But I would encourage you to have that experience and to capture it in some way and just to have that as a point to keep going back to. That's beautiful. I had such a pleasure talking to you about this intersection. Um, I also try to inhabit it myself. So it's just been so nice to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. Your customer cares about light pollution. Suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.